Joining me today is Arpin Sheth, Global Capability Leader of Vector Digital. Today we'll talk with Arpin about his journey to Bain, being a founding partner of our IT practice and launching Bain's Mumbai and Bangalore presence, and Vector, our digital delivery platform that produces capability assets for our clients. Welcome, Arpin. Glad you could be here today. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to speak to the audience here. So, Arpin, we should probably start with your background, as we always do on the podcast. You started out being an engineer and studying engineering. Did you always know that you wanted to be an engineer and, and follow that path in college? So, yeah, I went to University of Virginia undergrad, and I, I majored in electrical engineering. And I suppose, like a lot, many people, I followed the footsteps of my father <laughs> in this situation. He was also an engineer and kind of had a dream that I become an engineer as well. And so felt like a good fit for me in general to become an engineer. And as I went through school at UVA as an electrical engineering major, I enjoyed it. I don't think I was particularly gifted as an engineer, but that's kind of where my path led me up until my undergraduate days. Right. And when you finish with an electrical engineering degree, you ended up going into the sector. So what did you decide to do when you graduated and left UVA? Yeah, I was fortunate when I graduated UVA that I ended up working for a Washington, D.C. area defense contractor called SAIC, which is a San Diego-based defense contractor. And I happened to land there almost serendipitously. There happened to be a UVA alum who was a sort of lead recruiter for the engineering program at SAIC. And so she was the one who kind of sourced me and a, a number of other UVA grads who ended up there. It was an amazing first job. That's where I first got exposure to kind of project management skills and business travel. We were installing, a, configuring and installing a, the first health electronic healthcare system at the Department of Defense called the Composite Healthcare System, which is still used. And that was fascinating because it was all aspects of engineering from physical to electrical to sort of systems integration, because at the time, many U.S. military bases around the world didn't have computer systems. So we were literally putting in data centers and pulling a fiber to uh, create fiber runs and put drops for Ethernet jacks and then also putting in terminals and putting in mainframes and then later sort of client server systems. So it was, it was a great first job. I got to see the world in that first job. I traveled to Europe, Asia, Iceland, places I've never been in my life up until that point. Lots of places around the U.S. as well that I had Arkansas, the the Ozarks, which are now famous, but in the early 90s, I'd never heard of them. So it was, it was great. And so Arpin, you're seeing the world, you're having a good first job out of college, but you do decide to go back to business school. Was there a moment when you realized that business school was something that you wanted to do? Yeah, I was having a great, I really did enjoy my job at SAIC because I got to see the world. I was sort of experiencing things I hadn't experienced, but from a technical perspective and business and from a business perspective, meaning I got to participate in bids, I got to do sort of proposals. And so I was starting to get my first exposure to what the business world could look like. And then in parallel with that, I had a lot of friends and family who had actually gone into business careers out of, out of undergrad. They had gone to investment banking jobs in New York. They had gone to management consulting firms and other roles. And those were roles that I hadn't had a lot of exposure to. And as I began to speak to them and sort of see what their lives were like, I said, look, that's kind of interesting to me. And that's when I decided to kind of apply to business school. And and sort of that was the trigger for me to go back to business school, which is sort of, you know, I was really enjoying the exposure to the business side, inspired by these stories. So I decided to go back to school. 
which I did do after about two and a half years, three years of being an engineer. And I know you wanted to do something at the intersection of business and technology. So how did you think about your career path during and after after Darden? Yeah. So, you know, it was, I think, you know, going into Darden, which was an amazing experience. So I kind of advocate for people to consider Darden as a, as a school to get your MBA. As I went through that process over two years, it kind of became clear to me there were a couple of things I enjoyed. I enjoyed sort of client services type work. My job prior to business school, that's kind of what I did, even though it was sort of government services. I enjoyed that interaction with people. I enjoyed that interaction, kind of being at client sites. Um, And at the time, I really liked to travel. And so I knew I wanted to kind of keep on that client side of things. And then secondly, I really liked technology. Uh, You know, that's what I did before school. And I kind of was looking around and saying, look, the world seems like it's kind of getting more technology intensive. And I'd like to be at that intersection. You know, back in those days, we were just moving into client-server technology. The Internet was just coming to four. So I was trying to find things that would let me take advantage of that and sort of build my career at that intersection of combining a services orientation with a technology and business set of capabilities. And that's what I set out to find coming out of business school. And that's how I ended up in my first job at AT AT&T Solutions, which doesn't exist anymore, but was intended to be this business unit that helped AT&T sort of kind of insert itself into business dialogues and then serve really as a thin edge of the wedge to kind of hopefully then sell in a bunch of network services and systems integration services. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the design and felt quite logical. Where it all fell apart was no executive really wanted to buy business consulting advice from AT&T, which was having its own issues at the time. Uh, sort of was the flaw in the uh, in the business plan then. Everything except willing customers turns out to be not enough <laughs> as a strategy. You ended up staying with the A three letter acronyms and going over to AMS afterwards. Was that a, an right. easy transition? That's right. I'll abstract out a little bit. You know, I think sometimes there's this belief that you'll kind of come out of business school and have this beautifully well planned, well adjusted career where you'll join a firm and maybe you'll stay for five, ten years and kind of build a nice career path, come to Bain and become a partner. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I had much more of a, I would call it a journeyman's iterant journey coming out of business school. I ended up in one, two, three jobs, I think within three years, AT&T didn't work out. I left because it was very clear that the business model was flawed, to your point. We probably should have speaking to some buyers of consulting services before they launched that (laughs) business. Then I launched at AMS, which is a, you know, a great firm. It was actually a fantastic firm that was sold probably about a decade ago. But again, it wasn't quite the right fit for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons for me. And then ended up at AT Kearney, uh, where I got recruited out of AMS, which was really fortuitous for me because that's where I met mentors and particularly one mentor who was very influential in my life and I wouldn't have ended up at, at Bain without him. And Kearney was the first place out of business school that I worked that I really enjoyed and thrived at. I was perfectly kind of at the ad intersection of client services, in business and technology. I got to work on a couple of programs, but one program in particular with a large Northeastern insurer where we were doing work to transform how they thought about and implement the use of technology to change their field force and their field agency force. But lo and behold, during my tenure at Carney, which I thought I would have stayed at for quite some time, is when the internet boomed, right? 96 is when I think Amazon was founded. The first, I think, large venture wave in the United States was in sort of that late 90s. And I happened to have a really good friend for business school who was a venture capitalist. And he and I got to talking and I said, this is really interesting. And 
gosh, you know, I was, I was sub 30. I think I was 28 at the time. And I said, I'd like to try this internet thing. And I joined a startup and called Four Point Partners. I spent the next three and a half, maybe four years there. And it was probably the most pivotal experience in my career, barring Bain. I think it set me up well here. I was once again in client services. It was a business built to serve companies who wanted to build digital and e-commerce presence. For those of you old enough, which probably not a lot of you, there was a whole set of kind of e-commerce and systems integrators that grew up around the dot-com boom, uh, Viant and Scient and Sapient and Monday and Fourpoint. And I happened to work at Fourpoint and sort of help sort of start their New York office and got to do some amazing work building the first e-commerce properties and businesses of a number of prominent retailers around the country. It gave me an amazing opportunity to kind of work in tech work in client services, learn deeply about what it takes to build e-commerce businesses, not just the website, because there's no such thing as an app in those right. days. The logistics around it, the order management, the marketing. And it was an amazing experience, really amazing. I grew up a lot. I was in charge of sales and kind of was driven by driving programs. The only kink in that plan was the dot-com bust of 2001, <laughs> which kind of torpedoed everybody. We were literally, I think... Within days of an IPO, the S1 had been filed. We were counting down the days. And then, boy, that dot-com boom blew that. And then that blew a hole in venture funding. And that blew a, a hole in confidence of executives to, at retailers and other places to invest in their e-commerce. Because those were the days that, like, I think drugstore.com went under. And I think that was the, that was the days of Webland, which I think was you know, Sequoia's yes. biggest blow-up till date. Can't forget Pets.com. Pets.com. That's the one I was just thinking about. Those are the days in which like, you know, targeted outsourcing e-commerce to Amazon. I don't think people realize how difficult and challenging that time was. Because like you said, now you can just, I mean, anybody can start an online yeah. business using any yeah. one of a number of platforms. But back then, having a secure way to pay for things was actually a barrier for a lot of websites. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just bring it to life. For the audience back then, if you wanted to do e-commerce, it was not just you know like today. What would you do? You would kind of go to Shopify. You might go to you know, any yeah. Wix or somebody else, and you could spend all your time worrying about what's the right assortment of products for me to sell, and then how do I get the right sort of customers here? And there, I could you know I have the benefit of working with Google and Facebook from an advertising perspective, or maybe I sign up some creators and get the influence mm -hmm. and drive traffic. Back then, if you wanted to do e-commerce, our proposals were all about, well, geez, well, here's the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of sort of servers and network equipment and firewalls you got to buy. And here's sort of the contracts you need to have with the telcos to have your, do you need a T1? How many T1s do you need? Right. Kind of like, you know, how much are you going to pay for an army of kind of developers to build that site and the licenses for ATG or other sort of software, it, it was, you know, it was daunting. The barriers to e-commerce then were very high. There was a whole ecosystem of companies that were playing the role of bringing that together for their clients. And that's what we did. And then, and then the funding dried up. And as that funding dried up and as confidence dried up for many sectors of the internet economy back then, but particularly for the e-commerce sector, it was, it was like a deep freeze. And so we went very quickly, I don't remember the exact number of employees now, but let me call it a thousand plus. We went very quickly from a thousand plus to 200 
And I remember the day I was in the office and we had to lay off a big chunk of the New York office. And I did a lot of those myself, uh, a couple of dozen, probably like 50, 60 layoffs, I think, if I remember correctly. That was a searing moment for me. And I think all those experiences were really helpful to me as I came back to consulting at Bain, which was my next landing spot, because kind of had four or five years of kind of operating experience. So how did you end up back in consulting and specifically at Bain? I know from my own experience, you know, you meet people along the journey that you just tend to keep in touch with. And my understanding of your journey was was similar in the sense that you started meeting yeah. people that you kept in touch with. And when the stars aligned, you were back in touch with them. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and eventually, if there's time, I can talk a little bit of my lessons learned as a, in my career. But one of them is really, I guess there are two main ones, which is when there's an open door, take it and embrace it like, and just take the risk. And the second one really is relationships really mean a lot. And I know that's kind of a trite way of saying it. But what I would say is relationship with no expectations. So really investing in people because actually you learn from them, you enjoy their company, and right. you go out of their your your way to help them. And so for me, one of those relationships was a is a Bain partner named Gary Clare. He's you know he's still a New York partner, and Gary was at Carney. He was a partner on the cases I worked on. He was my mentor. He was a coach, and he was a really great supporter. And as I was thinking through opportunities. Post Four Point, I had the opportunity to go back to A.T. Carney as well, where I, there's a partner who's still there today, was a great supporter and mentor. I wasn't thinking of coming back to consulting after after I did that experience. I actually really liked the pure tech, and I was thinking about going to do tech. And Gary was like, no, look, why don't you at least come do a few conversations? At the time, Bain was looking to increase its presence in technology consulting IT, and so I did a few dialogues and I actually really liked the people. And then there happened to be a business school classmate of mine, David Cooper. And Coop is a, obviously, you know him, Keith. He's a senior partner in their New York office and runs their consumer products practice in the U.S. He's a great guy. And, and just talking to him and others gave me the sort of confidence. Obviously, Bain is an amazing place to work. And in 2003, when I was interviewing, had a wonderful reputation. So I said, let me try this with the full intention in my mind that I would do it for two to three years again and then kind of go back to tech. And that was kind of the game plan. It's becoming a, a bit of a running joke on the podcast because I think you're probably the 15th person that's been on here and said, yeah, you know, I was going to do it for a year or two and then and then bounce to something else. And we look yeah. up in it well over a decade. But you did join the New York office and focused on financial services and tech and ultimately were promoted to partner in the New York office. But you didn't yeah. stay in New York. How did that play out? Yeah, and I think this is kind of gets back to the embrace the opportunities and take the open doors. I was perfectly happy in the New York office. I was this was 2007, and at that point in time, Bain was we had gone back and forth as a firm as to whether to open an office in India. We had hemmed and hawed. We hadn't done it in 2006. We pulled the trigger. There were a set of northeastern partners, uh, meaning from our Boston office, who moved. To India to open her office, and they asked me, uh, Ashish Singh, whether I would be open to coming to India. And, you know, I kind of hemmed and hawed about it because I wanted to get some things done, like be promoted in New York. And, and just for everyone's context, while I was born in India, I moved to the U.S. when I was six months old. I educated here, families here, network is here. My Hindi and language skills are 
extremely poor. And so it didn't feel like a natural move. But we, my wife and I, we, at her encouragement, we took a look-see trip to India in 2008. And we decided to take the plunge and kind of move to India. And I agreed to a transfer, though I first tried to negotiate with James Root. It was the office head that I could do it for like two years. And you got to do it for three. So you get the nonstop ticket to India from New York? Yeah, so I got the I got the ticket from India. And again, like, you know, last time I had a disruption was the dot-com boom. And this was fall of 2008. And many of you remember what happened in the fall of 2008 is when the global financial crisis hit. At that point, so I got a call and said, look, instead of going to India, do you mind taking a, a detour through Australia to help on a sort of priority client situation that you have some applicable experiences? And I said, well, my wife and I looked at it and said, look, you know, our kids are young, bags are packed, they're going somewhere. So, you know, if the firm wants us to move to Australia, let's just take the opportunity and kind of go live somewhere where we probably wouldn't have otherwise. And we spent about nine months there. And then we finally made it to India, where I actually spent the next 11, almost 12 years of my life versus the next kind of two and a half years. So, and it turned out to be just a, an incredibly pivotal period of my career at Bain where I don't think I would have achieved some of the things and where I am now if I had not gone to India. Right. It's, it's taking a little bit of a, of a chance on yourself. And I want to talk about that. And for those interested in the journey that Bain went on in India, they may be interested in listening to Lalit Reddy's podcast from a couple seasons ago, because Lalit talks about going uh, back and forth from Chicago to India as we built out our presence there. And Arpan, you mentioned sort of the pivots along the way. And I know when we were talking earlier, you talked about learning about how to double down on your strengths and learning how to fortify some of your weaknesses. What were some of the professional experiences that really contributed to that pivot that you made when you got to India? Yeah, you know, coming into India, right, I had to sort of figure out, well, look, I have some strength. I have many strengths, but I had some profound weaknesses or gaps coming into the Indian market. And just for context, India was a very small business for us at the time. I think when I got there in 2009, we had five partners, something like that. I might be off plus or minus one, let's call it. A small business. I did it, like I said, I didn't speak Hindi and I still don't. I understand it. I did not have a professional network because I didn't go to school there. And so I decided actually to kind of focus on industries that where my education, my experiences could actually work well, right. which ended up being tech and private equity for us. And I ended up getting the opportunity to kind of lead our private equity practice, uh, building on the shoulders of some people before me. And that turned into a basic home run for us. And part of it is the Indian economy grew, you know, from 2009 to 2022, the economy blossomed and it changed dramatically. And so that business grew kind of 15x for us during that period of time. The second piece, which was really fortuitous, was if you harken back, I did a lot of e-commerce and I had a real interest in that space and tech. And so a few years into my journey in India, probably four or five years into it, I started focusing on sort of the tech ecosystem and the venture space in India. One, just to get to know people. Two, there was a large e-commerce platform that I really wanted to work with, and it took a few years to get there. And then that kind of just has blossomed for me over the years into kind of this powerful set of flywheels, commercial flywheels for me, that circle around investors, that circle around particularly growth investors, that circle around growth companies. The India venture market, just to give mm -hmm. people some perspective, in 2011, maybe there was four or 500 million flowing into India from a VC perspective. Last year, 42 billion flew into India from a growth and venture. So obviously the market has blossomed. When I got to India, venture and growth was not a viable alternative for people. Now it's a huge alternative. 
And when you talk about alternative Bain paths, we have a number of founders in India who are Bain alumni. Corns like Delivery and Zumato and Policy Bazaar, all are Bain alumni. So that was wonderful. And, I, and then if I branch it into the vector side, uh, which I can do at the right moment, that's where kind of my association and deeper involvement in Bain's digital efforts began. And so before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about your work leveraging the investment background that you have. Because you also, outside of your partner work, you're also an angel investor, right? That's right. I got to, the first couple of angel investments I did were just really serendipitous. (laughs) I'll tell you the first one. The first one's pretty funny. I was in New Delhi and I was at the Bain office, which is a place called Cyber Hub. And I went downstairs, this is probably 2010, to have lunch. And I went to this place that reminded me substantially of Chipotle. (laughs) And there there are no Chipotles in India. And so I ordered my, you know, my bowl and I asked a guy at the register, I was like, who owns this place? Because it reminds me of Chipotle. And he says, I do. I went to Darden. <laughs> and, just, you know, <laughs> and I was like, really? And I was like, are you trying to build a Chipotle of India? He's like, that's right. That's what I'm trying to do. We got the talking and it turns out a professor I had when I was at Darden was an investor. And he said, hey, would you mind supporting us? And I, that was my first thing. I lost all the money because it shut down. But, you know, that's kind of what happens when you do these things. And that was my first one. And then I I think I'm up to just shy of 50 angel investments now, both in India and the U.S. And it's just it's just been a fun part of my non-Bain life. And it's, support, it's helped me in my Bain part of my life as well. Mm-hmm. Some of my investments are with clients as well who introduce me to them or bring me into investments they're doing. And so kind of the three flywheels for me really are around investors, around growth companies, and then around sort of venture ecosystem, which has actually created commercial opportunity. And, you know, as we all kind of think about our own next stages of our career, mine will revolve more and more as I get older around working with younger entrepreneurs in the venture ecosystem. Sounds like the India experience for you was a tremendous one. You you said you were there for nearly a dozen years and then you moved back to the U.S., but you didn't move back to New York. You moved to D.C. What was the calling there? The kids were a little bit older. You probably had roots in India. This was um, 2020. We had been planning to move anyways, independent of the pandemic, but the pandemic actually delayed our timeline because for four months while we were there, India was completely locked down, so you couldn't even get out if you wanted to. For us, the transition was really kind of for reasons a lot of people moved back to their home countries is we had been out of the country for 11 years. My eldest was graduating high school and going to college, so it was a nice transition. Middle one was going into high school. The youngest was going into middle school, so it was kind of perfect transition year. Right. Parents are getting older, so we said, look, why don't we recenter the family in the U.S.? I'll continue to have a global career at Bain, which I've done. I work in the U.S., and I continue to work in India. And so that was the trigger for doing that. That was the trigger. And so let's now get into what you mentioned before, talking about Vector. You're a global capability leader within Vector. Explain to people what Vector is and what your role is within that ecosystem. Yep. So I am the global capability leader for Vector Digital. And I'll talk about what's encompassed in Vector. Vector really is a is an umbrella brand for Bain's digital capabilities. And those are enterprise technology, which is run by one of my partners, Stephen Phillips. Advanced Analytics, which is run by California-based partner of mine, Roy Singh. Automation, which is led by Michael Herrick. Digital marketing, in which we've acquired, we acquired a few years ago an agency called Forward, which sits in our customer practice, which was run by Darcy. 
And then finally, there is innovation and design, which is a 300-person organization which works with our clients to design and develop and sort of research, design, and develop consumer and employee experiences and build new business ventures. Across those five, we today probably have around 750 professionals who are amazing data engineers, digital marketers, IT architects, developers, designers, innovation experts, and venture architects. And so that's the group. My role is within that is I run innovation and design as a servant leader. I help coordinate the activities across these, but the others have their own leaders. And then I help to sort of coordinate the M&A activities across these families of capabilities. Right. And so there's nearly a thousand people inside Bain doing the work that you just described. That's not an outside company or a separate company. And that's correct. And one of the things we've tried to do with our vector capabilities is while these skills and these types of talent are relatively new in the last five years to Bain, we've tried to make them deeply integrated to our business. That like when we work with our clients on digital programs, and I can kind of talk about one in a anonymized way, for example, we're working for a large financial services institution in the U.S. on its customer journeys. That program has involved Bain consultants, as you would have thought about them traditionally, innovation experts, our designers, our developers, our digital marketers, and integrated teams of them to deliver to our clients not just a strategy, but actually those new experiences, not just the apps, but the analytics behind that. And so that's the kind of work that in our working with our vector colleagues, we're doing increasingly more and more of that. And we have built that team organically, but we've also invested in and acquired a number of organizations to bring just world-class capabilities into Bain and Company, the trusted capabilities we're building and the people we're hiring, both at senior and more junior levels. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about the M&A that we've done, bolstering some of the capabilities you mentioned forward, which would be under digital marketing, but what are some of the other ones? So I'll talk about four that are in the public domain. There's Forward, which was our first, which is in digital marketing. That was a Minneapolis-based agency. That has been a tremendously successful acquisition for Bain. It's added a number of just wonderful people and great capabilities that we've never had in-house. And that's I see it as well from my client perspectives, where they just add so much value. The second family in which we've done acquisitions, and the two I can talk about there, are in advanced analytics. At the beginning of 2021, we acquired analytics firm in Italy called Pangea. And then just recently, we announced the acquisition of a machine learning and AI engineering firm based out of Chile called Spike. And those 35 individuals who are incredible data engineers, AI and machine learning engineers and business analysts are joining us in our Latin American business. And then the last one I'll talk about is we acquired a firm called Vertical in Europe, which was a part of Quartz, which is a larger acquisition we did in Europe. And Vertical is fantastic user design agency that works on business building and innovation that's become a core part of our innovation and design team. And so we think that we will always go higher organically for our vertical families. And we'll do that at all levels, senior to now we're increasingly bringing people at entry level and interns into our vector family of capabilities. But we will, as we've demonstrated, continue to add in organically to this because we just think there's amazing talent and amazing companies out there that can be pretty creative to our clients very quickly and 
that culturally fit well with Bain, which is really important aspect of what we look for. Yeah. And so what's in the future as you think about where innovation and design and vector are going to go for Bain? So it is important and increasingly portion important portion of Bain's journey. So these groups will only grow in scale. And I would say grow disproportionate to the rest of Bain, meaning that we will grow them faster. Bain is a growth company itself, and these will grow slightly faster. I think the mix of work that we deliver with our clients will increasingly involve vector-like capabilities. Our clients are demanding it from us. They're expecting it from us. And frankly, when we do deploy it, we're seeing great results. And so we will do more of this. And it, it is a huge priority of the firm to, to grow these capabilities and to groom these individuals and in these organizations and these capabilities to be future leaders of the firm. So I think, and Keith, this is something you're, you do a lot with, but I think Bain increasingly is a much more heterogeneous firm in the types of skills we deploy to fulfill our client mission and drive client results. Yeah, and I think what you said is often overlooked is that this is not just about bringing in capabilities, whether organic or inorganic, to the case teams to help the case teams. These are, in a lot of ways, equals to what we're doing on the Bain case team. A hundred percent. I would just really reemphasize that. These are client services individuals. And many of our hires in these groups are just incredible talents who've been in their, in their chosen fields of analytics or AI or design. Like they're amazing. And so increasingly, I think you'll see blended teams. We are seeing it and we'll see it increasingly blended teams of talent from different pockets of Bain, sometimes managed by classic band managers, sometimes managed by innovation experts or managed by uh, AA manager um, and fit for purpose for the mission and results that we're trying to achieve for our clients in that particular situation. And I don't think people realize how important that is. Some of us who have been around for a minute remember the big deliverable at the end of a project was a well-scoped model in Excel. And clients are expecting fully integrated apps that they can access their supply chain yeah. status on their phone 24-7. And I can't build that and I didn't learn that in school. For a large sort of bakery, the Bain team built an AI machine learning model that was pushed into production that basically optimizes route planning for the delivery, which reduces wastage on a daily basis for the baker. Like So it's taking insights that we've always had and basically making them production ready and experiences that are implemented with our clients. Having attended a bunch of events and meetings and, and even recruiting events with some of the folks that are part of Vector, just ridiculously talented people that are integrated with our case team. So you can join out of business school or out of a bachelor's program as a consultant or an AC and work with these folks and learn from them and they'll learn from you. It's, it's actually a really neat time to be at the firm, I think. Absolutely, and I suspect probably somewhere in your future podcast, you'll have some of these folks on here. Yeah, for those who are interested, we do have Pete Forsberg's episode from Forward, and we also have somebody from Spike probably coming on the podcast soon, uh, in addition to talking about Quartz and OpEx Engine and some other M&A work that we're doing. Arpin, as we wrap, let me ask you, what advice would you give to people that are listening that aren't quite sure what they want to do, but know that it's sort of tech-related, it's strategy-related, it's business-related? You know, how should they think about their journey as they plot their well, path? I think the insight I had 30 years ago holds even more true today which is the world is becoming even more tech intensive than it was when I first started my career. And in fact, when I first started my career, all the dialogues were on how do you get business and IT to collaborate and how do you, <laughs> right? You would have like business relationship managers that sit between business and IT. 
I think today that's that's no longer the case. Business and IT are one. IT right. tech is inside right. the business, so I think it's an amazing time to forge careers like this. I think you can. So I think every job has a bit of tech element to it. I think companies, a firm like Bain and Company, obviously, I, I think is an amazing place to do that. Notwithstanding Bain, I think there's a number of other places you can do it. I think my advice is actually probably broader, which is embrace the risk, take on opportunities because you just never know where it leads. I would, you know, it's hard to always sort of take a step back, but would I have designed a career that looks like mine now? Probably not, but I'm excited and happy that this is what's happened. Absolutely. And then invest in the relationships. And again, what I mean by that is build those relationships, invest in people with no expectations of returns, right? Just on people who you enjoy being around, people who you learn from. Inevitably, that just pays off for both sides in a multitude of ways as in, over the years. Really awesome advice. Arpan, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk today and look forward to catching up in person, I think, in a couple of weeks when we're over in Europe together for a meeting. Thank you, Keith. I look forward to seeing you there. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.